Hey, Guinevere Lee here. Before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that Noelle and I are going to be attending Word on the Street. Word on the Street is one of the largest literary festivals in Canada, and it's taking place in Toronto September 23rd, that's a Sunday, at the Harbourfront Centre. The event goes from 10am to 5pm, and it's completely free. You can stop by our table, which is number 400E, just on the northwest corner in between Teen Spirit and the Learning Station. We're going to be giving away a lot of free prizes as well as selling copies of Arope the White Snake and Lita and the Samurai. I hope you guys can make it and that you stop by our table for a chat. See you then. Welcome to Historical Fantasy. I'm Guinevere Lee. I am Noel Sayar. And today we're going to be talking about Sendai. Yes. Now Sendai is the fictional city in the story Lita and the Samurai, which this is a companion podcast for, but it is also very much a real city. And not only is it a real city, it's a city that I lived in for about five years. And I live about three years as well. So we're going to talk a little bit about the history, about the legends, and about modern-day Sendai, as we know it. I will talk about the Hoku, that is the region from the north of the Honshu Island, where Sendai belongs. Yeah, Tohoku literally means northeast, or I guess east-north. We want to get yes. very technical. <laughs> and it really just refers to the part of the main Japanese island that is north of Tokyo. Yeah, <laughs> basically everything 200 kilometers north to Tokyo is Tohoku. Yeah, and these days Sendai is the largest city in Tohoku. And Tohoku itself is kind of known as... A bit of a bumpkin country, I guess. Yes. That's where all the farmers live. It's the, the tiny towns with small populations. Well, as well as Hokkaido. Hokkaido. It, it, it's a really farm. Hokkaido is from the, Japan. It's the Newfoundland of Japan. <laughs> One of the reasons why it is a little bit different, it's because like the Tohoku don't belong to the kingdom of Japan until like a very late in history. Initially, Tohoku was populated from one people called Emishi. Are the Emishi and the Ainu connected? I, I will explain Oh, okay. It. I don't want to step on your toes. Yeah. Emishi, first record appeared in one Chinese manuscript from the century five, and they describe it as a hairy people. A hairy people? Yes. <laughs> okay. The historians think like the Mishi are related with the Ainu, but they are not exactly sure about that. So the like, the Ainu are the indigenous people of the island of Hokkaido. Yeah, well, and also like from the north of Honshu, that is still living nowadays, yes. like a, some community around there. Very small communities, but they yes. they do still exist today. I think maybe the Emishi, on the other hand, do not exist anymore. The Emishi, for the thing that like I learned, they integrated with the Han. So the few Emishi blue that can still is completely like a mixed right. with, with the rest. So they don't have community of pure Emishi. Right. I guess like they haven't held on to the culture either. Yeah, exactly. So I just like uh, the dilute from the rest of the like Japanese culture. And until that, like uh, the region of Tohoku 
was not the last savage lands, and they was in on of war between the centuries 7 and 10, and the first campaigns was unsuccessful because they used guerrilla warfare, and meanwhile Japan used heavy infantry, mounted archery, one still of combat but then Japan like adopt. And it's very important these campaigns because like is where appeared the figure of Shogun that was the general in charge of, of the armies. Yeah, we talked a bit about this in episode two yeah. when we went over the Edo era, well how the Edo era began and how the Shogunate began. So when we mentioned that there were all the wild hordes to the north that they had to go off and fight, we were talking about the Amishi people and perhaps to a lesser extent the Ainu. I'm not sure if they ever made it that far north. Yeah, but I feel like the Ainu just like a very small community. They weren't warriors? No, basically. It is not a record of big military campaigns against the Ainu. Right. Whereas the Amishi, it sounds like they could kind of hold their own. Yes. And also the Amishi was invented like the precursor of the katana, because until this time the sword in Japan are straight, but the Amishi... Like the Chinese. Yes. But the Amishi have the curved katana, because they combat in horse. How interesting. They just adopt a lot of good things yeah. from Tohoku. They, they really stole quite... Like a lot of the sort of classic images of, you know, Japanese warriors, it sounds like. Those cornerstones came from the Amishi people. Yeah, because in the beginning, the samurais, this the art of mounted archery. Right. That's actually something that belonged from the Amishi. But in the century 8, like uh, Tagayo, that is one city, 20 kilometers east to like Sendai, become the capital of like the Motsu province. That is more or less the area that now belonged to Tohoku. It's very important that in like 1095, the Fujigara clan, that is a very powerful clan in that time, set in Hirezumi. And during one century, Hirezumi became very powerful, because was the focus of culture, like a very beautiful temple was built even like a copy of the Golden Temple of Kyoto. And Kyoto started to see Hirezumi as a thread. So in 1189, the first shogun of the Kamakura area, that is the area when the shoguns become permanent and not like a temporary positions, Kajori Tomo Miyamoto was like a sent to destroy the like Hirezumi and practically like uh, reduce the city to like uh, the ashes. And during three centuries, like uh, the area of Tohoku never become a site of power again. And also possibly because of tsunamis. And also because of tsunamis. We'll get into that later. Yes. Until like uh, the rise of the Date clan. The clan Date appeared like initially in the century 12 in Fukushima prefecture and was a minor descendant of the Fujikara family. The Date clan started to gain power during the turbulent times of the Senkoku period and after the battle of Sekigahara Ieyatsu Tokugawa punished the Uesugi clan that support the loyalists during that battle. And Which again, you can hear all about in episode 2, yes. where we talk about the Edo era. And like give all of these territories to the Date clan, like with territories that belong to the Sendai area. Yeah, obviously when you conquer another daimyo, you would just split up its territory and... and like the Date clan like I was decisive like in the battle of Sekigahara for like for the reinforcement that he sent so he like uh, give that territory as a reward. Yeah we're gonna talk a lot more about Date Masamune in the future 
And unfortunately, we haven't really been able to touch on him yet, but he played a huge part in the Battle of Sekigahara. Yes. Which we glossed over <laughs> greatly when we talked about it in episode two. But that's because Date Masamune is going to get his entire episode yes. dedicated to him in the future. And like in the 1601, like they start the construction of the Sendai Castle, and in this one, like the Date clan become like a, the main power in the Tohoku area. Yeah. But it is a history for later. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so a town did exist in the place where Sendai is now. Mm -hmm. But it would have been a very small farming community. As soon as Date Masamune came there, it became a massive cosmopolitan area. Yeah. It has remained ever since. Basically, they construct like the big castle in the Sendai area. So it started to become like a, the fortress of the region. And as a consequence, the city grow like around it. That is always that happened like in that area. Yeah, Sendai Castle, it's in a very strategic position because it's on the top of a hill behind of which there are mountains, in front of it there's a river. So it was a really great location. I don't believe that that castle was ever tested though. I don't think Sendai was ever under siege after the Date clan moved in. It was a pretty peaceful place from the beginning of the Edo era. Well, right up until the Meiji Restoration. We must say that is not fair because like well, during the Edo area was like a yeah, main yeah. piece during all the that's country. True. That's true. <laughs> but yes, in addition to like um, the hill with the castle, it is surrounded by a river and like uh, the floodlands. So it is very convenient because you have like uh, all of the station for farming and in the middle you have the hill with like uh, the castle that dominate all the area. So it's the, it's the perfect place to grow like a big city around. Yeah, unfortunately, in modern day Sendai, the castle's no longer there. Yes. Although the walls, like the stone walls of the mm -hmm. castle are still there. And you can go up and take a, you know, beautiful scenic pictures. Because it's completely flat land from the river until the ocean. Yeah. So you can see all the way to the sea from up there, which is really amazing. And also it is like a beautiful park in the top, so it is yeah. like a perfect <laughs> place for a picnic or just spend a couple of hours. Yeah. So I've found a couple of legends about Sendai. Ooh, well, <laughs> I mean, they're very much based in reality, but they sort of have taken on legendary qualities. Now, the first comes back to Date Masamune again. He settled this city. He also laid out the grid of the city. He completely designed this place. And one of the things that he did was he strategically placed temples, six well, actually seven, mm -hmm. seven temples around the city, some of which these temples had been in different locations, different cities, different provinces, and he had brought to Sendai with him. Mm -hmm. So if you were to look at a map of Sendai and you were to connect all of these temples, six of them would form a hexagram, Ooh. a six-pointed star. Yes. And then the seventh temple, which is just to the east of them, if you connect that up with it, and the top temple and the bottom temple, you get a cross. There's a lot of theories about <laughs> why Date Masamune did this. I mean, I think 
The simple version could just be that he liked religious symbols. It could just be that he was amused by it. <laughs> or just the fact that, like, in that time, the temples are using as a defensive position during war times. That could also be... It could have been a purely practical method of spreading the temples out around the city center. Well, I guess not technically the center, because one of the temples that make up is... The castle, actually. The castle yes. keep. But, uh, yeah, so some people like to theorize that mm-hmm. there's a more supernatural reason for this. And that maybe in the center of Sendai, there's a portal to another dimension. Like, can someone calculate the exact point of the center? If I mean, yeah, if you look at a map, you can see very clearly where the middle is. It's not a perfect star well but i mean in that time they don't have satellites but yeah they didn't didn't have satellite when they did this exactly i mean it's astonishing how accurate they managed to get you know the funny thing is that even though the story lead in the samurai which this podcast is a companion podcast for (laughs) even though that that story deals with a woman falling through a portal I did not know about this hexagram until after I started writing this story. Ooh. Uh, you'll have to read it if you want to know if I incorporated it into my story or not. But it was a very bizarre coincidence when I discovered that. Or it's not. Or it's not, yes. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe I was inspired. Maybe because I slept within the confines of that <laughs> hexagram, I was given this in my dreams. So the other thing I wanted to talk about, or rather the other person I wanted to talk about, is a man named Sendai Shiro, or Haga Shiro. Haga Shiro is the name that he was born as, but he's known as Sendai Shiro because he is such a huge part of the city. I think if anyone has ever been to Sendai, they have seen this man's face a thousand times. They may have never picked up his name. But it's Sendai Shiro. As the story goes, the great legend, during the Tanabata festival, which, as we mentioned in episode one, Mm -hmm. is the biggest festival in Sendai. And one of the biggest in all Japan. Yeah. So during one of these festivals, during the 1860s, which is when he was born, he was trying to get to a better vantage point to see the fireworks fell into the Hirose River, and then he either hit his head or drowned a little or somewhere in between, and (laughs) he got brain damage. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, he wouldn't speak a lot, and he wasn't able to function in a normal capacity, but he could still walk around, and he was always smiling and very friendly, and he became known around the city he was always wandering around. And people began to notice that whatever stores he would go to would start to do really well in business. And whatever stores he avoided would eventually fail. And it got to the point where businessmen would always invite him in, like offering him free food and free products, just so that people would see that, you know... He's coming, so... Yeah. He's he's blessing my shop. Exactly. Sendai Shiro is here. So now everybody knows it's a good place. It's a lucky place. And apparently that really works.
Park. Now, he suddenly disappeared in 1902 and nobody knows what happened to him. I mean, we know that he definitely existed because there are photographs of him, but it's very strange that we know nothing about his childhood beyond this story. There's no information about who his parents are and then we have no idea what he hap- like what happened to him 40 years later. He just disappeared. But either way, he passed away in 1902. He was never heard from again. And afterwards, businessmen in Sendai began to sell good luck charms with his face on it. And particularly, this was very popular with restaurants or small businesses. And still to this day, if you go to almost any store in Sendai, you will see a picture, usually behind the counter, of Sendai Shiro. And he's... It's a black and white photo, he's shaved bald, he's got this huge smile on his face, he's crossing his arms and kind of leaning back, and that image of him is everywhere. There are little statues, people have like keychains of him, it's a popular, like, tourists like to come and buy little coins with his face on it. And you can visit this one particular alley in Chris Road. Mm Mm-hmm. Which we've been to many times. Yes, I got a <laughs> <laughs> There's a little tiny alley in there. And there's a temple called Mitaki-san Fudoin. And that's where his spirit is interned. Because obviously we do not have a body for him. But still a, a ceremony was performed. And his spirit was laid to rest. In the business district that he made famous. <laughs> Yeah, it's become like the same equivalent to the tanuki. Yeah, I I love it because, you know, you don't see a lot of modern legends. And this was a person who lived just over a hundred years ago. You know, we have photographic evidence of him. But he's now become a deity. Like, people call him, you know, a god of luck or a god of business. And he's prayed to. It's very interesting to see something like that happen not too many generations ago. No, it, it is just like in the early Meiji area. Yeah, so it's really fascinating. And uh, I actually did not know much about him until I started researching <laughs> for this podcast. Me I knew, I, me knew <laughs> I knew he was a lucky man, but every time I would try to ask people in Japan who he was... Because of the language barrier, they always had a really hard time explaining. So I knew that he was lucky and that he made money. So I thought that he was just a very successful businessman. Yeah. But it turns out he was just very successful at helping other businessmen. <laughs> probably the U.S. just like had too much young people. Yeah, probably that's it. Because, <laughs> yeah, a lot of people didn't really know who he was. Yeah. <laughs> I especially love in Sendai Station, they have a little statue of Sendai Shiro, and he's wearing the station attendant's uniform. Oh, yeah. And it's really cute. (laughs) (laughs) Back to Lita and the Samurai. In the latest chapter, Lita has finally come to terms with the fact that she is in Sendai, but it's Sendai of a completely different time period. And the time period that we're going for is, again, at the beginning of the Edo era, and this is specifically also at the beginning of Sendai. So we're around 1605. So the city's already been built, 
The castle has already been built. And that is where we lay the play. If you want to see how all of this unfolds, then you'll have to check out the story on chanillo.com. Yeah, there'll be an ad for it later, and you can get all the info there. You should. Yeah, jawohl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Until next time. Itadashai! You don't question why you're running through a forest of bamboo. You don't give yourself time to think. You run, you scream, you cry. You run and run and run, and you hope the man chasing you with a bow and arrow doesn't kill you. Lita and the Samurai is a tale of a modern girl in ancient Japan. Only available on Chanillo.com. That's C-H-A-N-N-I-L-L-O.com. Lita, a young woman who moved to Japan to escape her abusive family, is slowly adjusting to her new life. She's learning Japanese, making friends, and enjoying the summer festivals. On the day of the famous Tanabata festival, she finds a small shrine. But when she steps out of the shrine, she steps into Edo-era Japan. Trapped 400 years in Japan's past, what follows is half fantasy, half historical fiction. Is her coming here an accident? Or does it have something to do with the sudden appearance of European ships off the coast? Lita must discover how she ended up in this situation and how she can get back home, or if she even wants to go back. Lita and the Samurai updates bi-weekly on Mondays. You can read the first chapter for free on Chanillo.com. Once again, that's C-H-A-N-N-I-L-L-O.com. We were the first, and we will be the last. From Morgan James Fiction comes the exciting new historical fantasy Orope, the White Snake, by Guinevere Lee. The whispers of the gods have seen the vision, the gods destroying the world in a flood because the old ways have been corrupted and forgotten. Three are chosen, Tersh, Kareth, and Shadi, to go out and warn the world. The gods must be appeased. In Orope, the White Snake, Tersh must leave her children and travel to Matawe, the kingdom in the mountains. She also must care for Kareth, and keep him out of trouble. Kareth, told since birth that he is destined for greatness, has been expecting this moment. Certain that he is ready, he quickly discovers that his confidence and curiosity have a tendency to lead him into dangerous situations. Shadi finds himself traveling alone to find the people of the jungle, the Petsahalpa. The jungle seems like a paradise until he discovers the darker rituals practiced within. Samaki is a merchant who returns to Mahat to find his home destroyed, his father dead, and no one to buy his expensive cargo. With his first mate, Tuhark, the merchant struggles to move forward after his entire world has been upended. The stories of these four travelers intersect and entwine with each other as they move towards their destinations. Guided by visions, the whispers must use their wits to survive in these strange new lands that would rather use them as political pawns than listen to their warnings. Available in paperback, digital, and audio wherever books are sold. To learn more about Guinevere Lee and her writing, visit GuinevereLee.com. G-U-E-N-E-V-E-R. R-E-L-E-E dot com. And thank you for listening. Music provided by bensound.com.